So the theme I would like to reflect on this evening is gladdening the mind, gladdening the heart. And I'd like to begin by reading you a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye called So Much Happiness. It's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there is something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing, and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches, and love even the floor which needs to be swept the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it and in that way be known. My sense is that the contented heart is probably one of the most rare and precious gifts we can find in this life. It can feel so hard to find. And yet in the moments when we really touch that deep sense of inner contentment, in those moments it can feel as if our whole world is somehow filled with ease. It's easier to touch on discontent. And the discontented mind we mostly experience when we're heroically striving to be something that we're not. When we're heroically striving to have something we don't have. And yet happiness and contentment is sometimes just really no further away from us than the next breath then opening our heart to the moment that we're in and learning what it might mean to release that striving. Life does not have to be perfect for us to find peace. Our minds and our bodies and our hearts don't have to be perfect for us to be contented. And our meditation certainly doesn't have to be perfect for us to find uh, happiness and contentment. But contentment asks us more, it's not so much about how we make it happen, but what we learn to take out of the way. I think contentment does ask us to somehow learn what it means to give up this striving and this struggling, to give up resistance and fear. 
Siddhartha, in the early years of his practice as an ascetic, as I mentioned last night, spent much of his energy trying to transcend this imperfect world. In fact, he had had kind of like a seven-year aversion attack. And then there came a moment when he remembered a time when he was a small boy. And it was a time when he really wasn't doing anything very special, but sitting on a hillside and watching a farmer below him plowing his field. No special event. But what he did remember of that time was how his heart, his mind, had been filled with this sublime sense of contentment, as if that moment, just as it was, was truly everything he could have asked for, everything he needed. Now, this first day of a retreat (laughs) is a difficult day, often, because we meet so directly everything that seems so imperfect. And to double the dukkha, (laughs) it can feel as if we have nowhere to hide from our bodies, nowhere to hide from our minds, nowhere to hide from our roommates, nowhere to hide from our meditation cushion. And I think when we have this sort of deluge of everything that seems difficult and imperfect, we, we find ourselves telling certain stories about our retreat. We tell ourselves that everything we've heard or ever glimpsed about how impossible meditation is it's all true. We tell ourselves that all our suspicions about this path being one that is grim and somber and miserable, that it's all true. I think it's a useful reminder at this point in the retreat, just that the Buddha never taught that this is a path of misery that leads to ever-increasing misery. He said that this is the path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. Now, contrary to what we may believe, the Buddha spoke often of joy, spoke often of contentment, of gladness of heart, gladness of mind. He spoke of the happiness that is born of the collected mind, and the calm heart. He spoke of the happiness that is born of concentration and seclusion, the joy that is born of being able to let go. Spoke about loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity as being sources of profound happiness and contentment. And he spoke so often of the joy of the liberated mind. Now, we have probably heard this before, and I'm sure that part of our coming to practice is really a response to that. And yet, I see in so many people, and I've seen it in myself, certainly, in my practice, this tendency to be somewhat dualistic in our understanding, that we often think that we have to pay a price for this happiness, or that we have to pay a price for contentment, that somehow we have to earn it. And sometimes we think that we earn it by the virtue of our suffering. 
And it is easy to somehow think that first we're going to suffer and later on, hopefully, we'll be happy. Or we might think that first we've got to struggle heroically and that later on at some mysterious point, we don't know when or how, we're going to have this breakthrough into contentment. Personally, I think it is far more helpful to ask ourselves, to ask yourself, what it would mean for you to have your practice unfold in a climate of happiness. What would be needed from you or to find within you to cultivate gladness of mind? I would really encourage you in this retreat to take into yourself as a kind of koan, as a kind of reflection, the instruction and the encouragement of the Buddha that in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. In a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. Now, in this practice, wise attention is really placed at the beginning and in the center of a path of deepening. We get a sense of very profound and transforming insight. It has a relationship to this calmness and stillness of being. That compassion, our capacity to to truly reach out and to embrace sorrow and to touch the heart of another, that that compassion really has its roots in stillness and receptivity. I think we all know that at the moments in our life where we've been deeply touched, moments of intimacy, moments of stillness, moments of love, they are surely the moments when we've been most wholeheartedly present and awake. I'm equally sure that it's clear in our own experience that to listen deeply, to see deeply, to feel anything deeply, we need to be present and attentive. So today we have begun. Breath by breath and step by step, and moment to moment, to cultivate the capacity that we all have to be present and attentive. And as we do this, and as we continue to do this through the retreat, it is so important to stay close to that reflection that wise attention grows in a climate of happiness. Now, I'm sure the first thing that you've noticed today is that it's pretty hard to cultivate wise attention. You know, maybe we thought we were great at concentration, you know, that we had really attentive minds. It's pretty hard to cultivate wise attention. And there seems to be a certain tension, almost a kind of intrinsic tension within it. Because we see really a lot of the time, we just our mind just doesn't want to be here. We just really don't want to be here. 
Now, this is not an unfamiliar tension, I might mention, in our lives. I mean, how many times have you found yourself in a situation where you say, I just don't want to be here? You know, or you may not even consciously be saying it, you know, but that you're, you're talking to a friend and your mind is wandering, you know, you're, you're walking through the store, you know, and you're planning tomorrow. You know, how many times do we find this, that it's so hard, it seems, just to be present in this life wholeheartedly? Now, one, another thing that we notice about attention is that we're often happy to pay attention to things that are really pleasant. I mean, if we said, okay, don't do a sitting, let's go out and watch the sunset. Or how about we show a movie tonight? You know, or how about we say, oh, no, forget that sitting, you know, go call up your friends, you know, make a little contact, you know, or played some music in here, you know, or brought in some masseurs. We'd probably all be happy, be really attentive. You know, because we're happy to be attentive when it's pleasant, without ever wanting, really, often to be somewhere else. Now, if in your meditation practice today you'd encounter endlessly rapturous moments, you know, uplifting experiences, fantastic insights, great breakthroughs, you know, we'd probably have to drag you out of here tonight. Meanwhile, you're probably thinking, how long until I could go to bed? (laughs) We pay attention to the unpleasant, the painful, and the difficult often, only when every other alternative has been exhausted, only when we can totally no longer avoid it or distract ourselves or resist it. We end up reluctantly paying attention to the unpleasant. And when something is neutral, and actually there's an awful lot of that in life, I must say, mostly our attention just slides away. We say, oh, I'm bored, you know, I'm, we just dismiss it, we neglect it. So here is this first kind of tension we're dealing with in the practice in developing wise attention. Because this kind of attention, you know, that's fascinated with the pleasant, that reluctantly pays attention to the unpleasant, and that just skips the neutral. In many uh, ways in this teaching, this is called a sort of childlike concentration. It's a concentration of being entranced. Hmm? And it's a little bit different than the kind of wise attention that we're asked to develop in the practice. And the wise attention that we're asked to develop in the practice could maybe maybe be defined simply as the willingness to attend to all things with equal respect. The willingness to attend to the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral with equal respect. You know, and one of the first questions many of us have to deal with in practice is, are we willing to do that? Are we really willing to make that leap, to include the whole of our lives equally with respect? It involves really quite a change of attitude. And I actually think that willingness really does involve considerable insight. But that change of attitude 
the willingness to be equally present with all things, is actually what determines whether this tension in developing wise attention, it determines whether it's going to be negative and exhausting or whether it's going to be creative. So that's a good question to sit with today. Are we really willing in our practice to attend to all things equally? Now, forcing does not create wise attention. It only creates more tension and contractedness. There are a lot of ingredients in wise attention. Deep ease, interest, curiosity, investigation, and happiness. So we have our breathing. We've been encouraging you to focus, rest within your breathing today. But it is so important to bear in mind that mindfulness of breathing is in the service of wise attention and insight. It's not in the service of, you know, being a perfect breather or, you know, having ten breaths in a row. I mean, you don't want to leave this retreat and say, if somebody asks you, you know, what did you get out of that retreat? You're going to say, oh, I managed to be with ten breaths in a row. You know, that's not what we want to leave with. We want to leave with understanding. We want to leave with wise attention. We want to be here with understanding. We want to be here with wise attention. Within the body of our breath, we explore what it means to gather and to collect ourselves. Within the body of our breath, we explore what it means to be awake and connected. And in with the body, within the body of our breath, we begin to explore what it means to gladden our minds, to gladden our hearts. And in the talk this evening, I'd just like to look at some of the building blocks of that gladness. The first of the building blocks of that gladness, in my understanding, is generosity. Generosity is the cornerstone, the heart of a meditative life. Not just material generosity, but the gift of fearlessness and the gift of the Dharma, the gift of understanding. Now, all teachings of generosity really have at their heart the willingness, of course, to let go, to not be withholding, to not hold anywhere. And I think we understand that wisdom of that very clearly in our own experience, that we see it so directly that any time that we really hold, that we really cling to anything, the immediate result is contractedness and tightness. So it is important to know this and to deeply understand that when we hear the encouragement to let go in our practice, We are letting go out of kindness, and we are letting go out of compassion. Letting go in truth actually gladdens our lives and our hearts. So a real question in the retreat is, how are we generous towards ourselves here? Now, generosity towards ourselves here doesn't mean, you know, phoning up for a pizza, you know, or going to sleep. 
a lot of the generosity to ourselves here is really starting to explore what it is for us to let go of discontent. The discontent that is very often, when you look at discontent, so often rooted in that heroic struggle to be what we are not in this moment. You know, we think we should be a Buddha and we feel like a schmuck, you know. As we're heroically struggling, and of course we are immediately discontented. Sometimes our discontent is really all about heroically struggling, trying to have what we don't have. You know, we think we should be calm, and we're agitated. We think we should be peaceful, and we're unsettled. You know, we think we should be awake, and the truth is that we feel dull. Now, letting go of discontent, you know, letting go of that, doesn't mean that we submerge ourselves in that which is unskillful or unhelpful. But we really start to look at how much we're pushing away, how much we're resisting, how much we're rejecting, and how much that is really suffocating the gladness in our heart. So we're asked to learn to find contentment with things, what it means to be content in the midst of agitation, in the midst of grumpiness, in the midst of the resisting mind. You know, the Tibetans have a story about this wealthy king, you know, this really rich king who could never, ever appreciate uh, or enjoy or, or celebrate what he had. Instead, he was always coveting what his neighboring kids, kings had. You know, they had more cows, you know. You know, they had more people. They had more land. And the name of this king, as unlikely as it sounds, was King Hard to Please. And I actually, this is a whole long story that I'm not going to tell, but I, it is just the name that makes me smile. Because I have met in my own practice so many times, Madam Hard to Please. And I am sure you have met today and you might mean to meet tomorrow, Mr. Hard to Please, you know, or Miss Hard to Please. And what is happening in that mind? It is often a mind of refusal. A refusal to be with the uncomfortable. And we should never underestimate how low our tolerance is for the uncomfortable. You know, we come here, you know, perhaps we expected, you know, a sort of Massachusetts wilderness resort, you know, and we've got a foam slab, you know. Perhaps we expected bliss, and we've got a wayward mind. Can you imagine a person who only ever has loving thoughts, a person whose body is always delightful, a person who is always surrounded by people that they love, who only has uplifting emotions. I think in the whole history of humankind, there has never been such a person. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be the first So we meet this imperfect world inwardly and outwardly. And here we're asked to find contentment. 
to understand that it's not the fact that we don't get what we want, that we are not who we want to be, that contracts us. It is the wanting. It is the insistence. It is the demanding. So we learn to soften that. We learn what it means to let that go a little. Kabir once wrote, he said, I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is the river you want to cross? Do you believe that there is some place that will make the heart less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Enter into your own body. There you have a place to rest. Throw away the thought of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Generosity to ourselves is learning to let go of preoccupation. I'm sure you have also experienced the spins of the mind today, how we can obsess really quite endlessly about how things should be. Again, it's sometimes taught that preoccupations do not end until we die, but they end end when we put them down. That is their nature. There's so much that we can think about, worry about, plan for, regret, obsess about. And one of the things that I think is really just kind of insight 101 (laughs) is to really notice that obsessing really doesn't make a difference to anything. Really doesn't make anything turn out differently. And often it's a habit. And that sometimes the way that I think about obsession is like chewing gum. You know, and imagine if you had to chew the same piece of gum all week here. You know, and, you know, probably after an hour or so, the flavor's all gone. You know, but your jaws are still working away. They're aching. They're so tired. They're still chomping away at this piece of tasteless gum. It's a habit. Sometimes we can learn, and we really do learn in the practice, that we can take it out. Because there is so little gladness in that preoccupation and obsession. Instead, what we sense is this undercurrent of anxiety and busyness. So with generosity, we learn to put the preoccupations down. And I'm not saying it's easy. We put them down. And then we put them down, and then we put them down, and then we put them down once more. And we don't use the word again, you know, because the moment we use the word again, you know, there I am again, you know, we're already beating ourselves up about it. But we put them down once more and once more. And we're learning just a little bit each time to lighten the load of the burden that we can carry. We come back to just this one breath. And when we can do that with willingness, we just begin perhaps to get the first taste of gladness. The gift of fearlessness is one of the aspects of generosity to offer a refuge to those who have no safety, to protect those who have no protection, to be a friend to those who have no companion. 
Generosity in that gift of fearlessness can mean taking the smallest creature out of harm's way. It can mean challenging injustice. The gift of fearlessness we also offer to ourselves. Perhaps you begin to notice that aversion and fear are the proximate causes of disconnection in our life. Mostly that's what makes us disconnect, aversion and fear. And in truth, there is so much that we can turn away from in ourselves. All the thoughts, all the emotions, all all the feelings that we condemn or dismiss or reject in ourselves, or we tell ourselves they're not welcome, they're not good enough, that they're unacceptable. And actually, we can do that turning away so often in our lives that we forget what it means, really, to be a friend to ourselves, to protect ourselves, and to be a refuge to ourselves. So with generosity, we learn to cultivate non-abandonment. And our practice is and truly can be an expression of tremendous generosity, attending wholeheartedly to everything that appears. The sounds, the wandering thoughts, one breath, our shuffling neighbor, with a heart and mind of respect, knowing this is worthy of our attention. A mind of generosity, a mind of gladness, is a heart and mind that says, this too, this too. You know, sometimes it's said that the world is full of choices, and at times the only choice we have is what attitude we will bring to this moment. A mudita, or appreciative joy, is another thread in the fabric of gladness. In fact, the Pali word mudita means a heart of gladness. In the Zen tradition, there's a saying, it says, a haiku, it says, although I long to be, although I am in Kyoto when the cuckoo sings, I long to be in Kyoto. Too often we (coughs) really are longing to be somewhere else, as if where we are is really not enough. And appreciative joy is really learning to delight, learning to celebrate all things that are well, all things that are lovely, all things that make our hearts sing. When in a retreat, you know, especially in this early time, you know, we meet our aching back and we meet our wayward mind and, you know, we meet frustration and disappointment and doubt and endless busyness. We are so sure that we are far from Kyoto. But the more indignant we become about that, the more insulted we feel, the more tight and the more contracted you will find yourself. You notice how easy it is in life to focus only on that which is broken. Broken in ourselves. How easy it is to focus only on that which is flawed and imperfect, inwardly and outwardly. 
And when we do that, gladness feels very far away, and it feels to be replaced by contractedness. And what happens when we focus only on that which is broken or imperfect, we so easily become aversive, judgmental, comparing, almost suffocating our capacity for gladness. Now, it is so true, of course, that the broken, that which is broken in ourselves, that which is broken in life, really needs attention, needs care, needs compassion, needs goodwill, needs sincerity. And yet, there's a part of this practice where we must allow ourselves to feel joy, appreciative joy. This is mudita. Sometimes I've noticed meditators, they they feel almost like it's an error in their practice to celebrate anything, Hmm? to delight in anything. They feel like it's a sort of slip, a grievous slip in their mindfulness if they happen to notice how lovely the bird sound is, or the stillness of the tree, or the touch of a breeze on your face. Yet I feel that nature is a great ally and a great teacher in the cultivation of a heart of gladness. To allow ourselves to delight in the small miracles and moments in this life, the beauty that can touch our hearts. To notice the flowers that are growing, the stillness of the trees, the sound of the wind. To take the time in your day to see this, to listen to this, to open to this, and to really notice how that, that willingness to be so wholehearted, that willingness to bring that kind of attentiveness, it illuminates our world. Our attention awakens our world, inwardly and outwardly. Wise attention is a way of opening the closed doors of our heart to be touched, It's not a sacrifice of mindfulness. It's not a sin. It is learning to be connected. Now, mindfulness practice, or this path of awakening, is really learning to step out of this conventional belief that our happiness depends upon someone or something making us happy. The belief and the suffering of this externalization of happiness and joy and well-being. One thing that I would really say in this practice, we stop looking for things to make us happy. What we do instead is we learn to awaken our capacity to be delighted. And this is the great secret and the great gift of meditation practice. We are awakening our capacity to be delighted. Born of our willingness to attend to all things wholeheartedly, of learning to celebrate blessings. Some years ago, I was teaching with Fred at Gaia House in England. And I'm not much of a morning person. You know, most people who know me know this. In fact, you know, my partner says to me, you know, you can hardly even be polite to yourself in the morning. How can you possibly teach retreats where you're talking to people at those hours? (laughs) So one morning I arrived at Gaia House and, you know, I ran into Fred and 
I probably had my early morning face on. And, you know, he said to me, he said, did you wake up healthy this morning? You know, did you have something to eat? You know, it was your house still standing, your partner still breathing, you still breathing, you know? Did you drive safely? You know, and I, it kept going through this long list of things, you know? And I noticed myself getting happier by the moment, you know? And it wasn't contrived or forced, but it was just kind of opening to that sense of appreciation, Opening to that sense of appreciation. Isn't it lovely here to have people look after us? Isn't it lovely here to turn up and there's a meal on the table? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that lovely, you know, that you have this time to be with yourself, to befriend yourself, to learn about stillness? Isn't it lovely just to have the chance to hear the birds sing? Isn't it lovely, actually, to feel that we have a body that is still here? The world is not perfect. We are certainly not perfect. But our capacity to meet and bear imperfection is made so much easier by our willingness to soften and to release and relax this demand that somehow life must always be other than it it is. Because we see that when our heart is closed, the whole world feels closed to us. When we don't see fully or openly, really hardly anything can touch us. When our mind is weary or tired, everything looks dark and tired. And yet the aliveness and the love and the joy that we long for really begins with enlivening our own hearts. Rumi once wrote, he said, Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Another great ally in the heart of gladness is the cultivation of spaciousness. And I think sometimes when we use the word spaciousness, people feel a little bewildered or puzzled by what we, know, what we mean. I mean, we know what it feels like to be spacey, you know, to be sort of disconnected and dull and wandering. But that, I might mention, is not what we mean by spaciousness. I read a story, uh, a conversation by a a monk who heard that his teacher was dying, his Thai teacher was dying. So he went to Thailand because he wanted to have some last connection with his teacher and receive, he hoped, some very special and memorable teaching. And so he went to his Ajahn and he said, please, can you give me some final words? Can you give me some final teaching? And his Ajahn said to him, Know the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. He said at first he was so disappointed. (laughs) He thought, what on earth is he talking about? And then he realized that this was a teaching about spaciousness. And if I might just kind of give you, put that in a more concrete example. 
You notice when you walk in this room how our tendency is for our attention to be drawn to everything that's in the room. You know, the cushions, the people, the lights, the fans, the windows. Imagine what it's like to walk into this room and instead of just noticing all the things in the room, pay attention to the space in this room. And the space in this room actually holds everything you see. The space in this room holds you, it holds me, it holds everything that's here. The space in this room really doesn't depend upon getting rid of anything that's in here. And it doesn't deny its right to be here. The space in this room is not mine. It's not yours. I don't feel territorial about it. When you look at the things in this room, there might be things that excite you, things you don't like. But the space in this room, its nature is pretty calm. It's pretty peaceful. It's pretty still. It doesn't have preferences. And it has the room to accommodate everything that is here. Another exercise you might take on, take a time to listen wholeheartedly in the day all the sounds that come. Sometimes there's many. Sometimes there's few. There might be sounds that are lovely. There are sounds that are not so lovely. Then notice the silence between the sounds and how the sounds emerge from that silence and they fall back into that. Silence. The silence, as any musician would tell you, is not denied by the sound. The sounds can be delightful or maybe not so delightful. But the silence is pretty calm and still and spacious. Learning in your day to notice the space around things, around people, around sounds, I feel in our practice, offers us a different way of holding all the things that appear in that space. Spacious mind really has room for everything and is really unshaken by what appears. Contracted mind always feels too full, overflowing. So we learn to notice the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. Your mind will have thoughts, will have images. It will at times become preoccupied. It will have memories. It will have uh, ideas. This is the activity of the mind. This is the activity of all minds. Your mind is not worse than any other mind. This is what a mind does. Notice the difference between the mind and the activity of the mind. All of this activity, too, arises in space, and it will fall back into space. We tend not to notice the spaciousness because we get so mesmerized by everything that appears. But the spaciousness is really subtle. You need to really kind of pay attention to it, attend to it. Calm down a little. Step back a little. Know this is the activity of the mind. 
and sense the spaciousness in which it is appearing. Spaciousness is not dramatic, you know. Spaciousness is not painful, you know, like some gripping fantasy obsession. Spaciousness is subtle. And we need to just sort of attend to it, notice it, pay attention to it. It's here. It's all around us, and it is within us. I think in our practice, we're always needing to find this balance of spaciousness and focus. It's a great art. You know, if you focus without spaciousness, you get all tense and tight and contracted. If you're spacious without attention, that's when you become spacey. So the breath is a real ally in learning to cultivate that art. It's not a way, please, the breath is not a way to exclude anything or to defend against anything. But start to notice the space between breaths you might begin to notice space between thoughts. There's a Zen saying that says, when your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. The unnecessary things are not the activities of the mind. The unnecessary things is all that extra layer of resistance and judgment and blame and wanting and struggle that we put on top. And this we can let go of. And as we learn to do that, we start to sense a sense of gladness of heart. And gladness in our practice, so important. We do this for the benefit of ourselves. We do this for the benefit of all beings. So easy to lose that sense of perspective when we get so caught in the contents of our mind. Every breath of attention, every moment of gladness, every moment in the service of understanding is for the benefit of ourselves. It is for the benefit of all beings. There's a tremendous kindness in that gladness. Atisha, who was a great Tibetan teacher, much known for his compassion, When he would meet someone on the road, he wouldn't say to them, how are you? He would say, has your heart been kind? And that really is such a part of gladness in our practice. Has our heart been kind today? I would like to end by reading to you something that uh, Oliver Sacks wrote when he was... uh, convalescing from a leg injury that made him stop in his life a little. He said, after breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning. I settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions, and I filled and lit my pipe. This was a new or at least almost forgotten experience. I'd never had the leisure to light a pipe before, or not, it seemed to me, for 14 years at least. Now suddenly I had an immense sense of leisure, an unhurriedness, a freedom I had almost forgotten, but which now it had returned seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now, freed from drive or desire, I was intensely conscious of each leaf autumn-tinted on the ground, 
intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless. Everything concentrated in an intensity of sheer, sheer being. Now on this morning, as on the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam beholding a new world of wonder. I had not known or had forgotten. There could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments of the serial, only of the perfection and beauty of the timeless now. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.